Hello and welcome to Baylor Connections, a conversation series with the people shaping our future. Each week we go in-depth with Baylor leaders, professors, and more discussing important topics in higher education, research, and student life. I'm Derek Smith, and today we are talking natural resources, infrastructure, and more with Dr. Ryan McManamay. Dr. McManamay is an assistant professor of environmental science at Baylor. He's a spatial ecologist whose research focuses on the relationship between humans and environmental systems with a particular interest in infrastructure. Last year, a family vacation to Yellowstone National Park turned into a research opportunity when flooding destroyed roads within the park, cutting off communities surrounded from the park and cutting them off from vital resources and tourism. With the help of an NSF rapid grant, McManamay took a team to interview business owners and residents around the park to better understand community dependence on natural resources and to start a conversation about natural resources and national parks as well, like Yellowstone, as critical infrastructure. It's been uh, quite a journey in the last year, and glad to have you with us on the program today. Ryan McManamay, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Derek. It's really great to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Well, it's good to visit with you on this, and uh, we've enjoyed hearing your story, and it's a uh, really quite a story, uh, you know, out of the blue in, in, in some ways. But I want to go way back before we ask you about it. Uh, Yellowstone National Park, uh, what did that and or other national parks mean to you and your family kind of really throughout your life? Yeah, yeah, great question. It, it, the, the national parks have been really important to my family, Yellowstone in particular. Um, uh, it's interesting, I didn't get to go until I was a teenager um, but, uh, my, my dad had gone as a kid about the same age, uh, and when I went the first time and his family took a road trip across the, uh, the Western U S you know, in uh, the early sixties and he saw Yellowstone for the first time and fell in love with it. And, uh, since then there was always stories about Yellowstone. And so we went back later several times. I worked out there after college for a summer uh, right outside the park. And so the region has always been really important to us. And and uh, and then my, my parents had always had, well, really dad had a real uh, desire to work in the park. And so for, for two seasons, they worked for Zantera, the major contractor, and worked in uh, the general store and the service station to be able to spend time in the park. So it's always been a big importance to our family and and a place to go back to over time. Did did that love of Yellowstone and the outdoors, how much did that shape your career path? Oh, it certainly did. So, you know, we, we were always were outdoors um, doing stuff, hiking, camping. We uh, grew up hunting and fishing. So being outdoors was a big component of, of my life. And uh, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, we, we, we always have gardened and, and enjoyed, you know, just uh, natural resources and are appreciative of those and have a practical appreciation of the, the land and the land ethic. And so, yeah, that just being outdoors, being, spending time in nature uh, was, was a big component and, and, and understanding that, valuing that, having a ethic uh, about that and the importance of managing the land uh, as well. Visiting with Ryan McManamay, and, and Ryan, I gave a brief description of, of your research focus uh, at the top of the show. H- how would you describe that? If you were talking to someone uh, while you were waiting in line at the DMV, hadn't they asked you, how, how, would, you, how would you describe what you do? You know, you, the, the science elevator pitch changes, you know, mm-hmm. depending on the, uh, the audience, right? Sure. And so, you know, if m- many places I, I try to tell them about the work in infrastructure that we do and, and how we, we examine. We, we're trying to ensure a sustainable future. Uh, we, we need infrastructures. We need 
roads, we need buildings to, uh, to live in, we, we, we need a way to grow food. At the same time, we can balance that. We can find ways to preserve uh, the natural function of ecosystems and ensure, because we really depend on those, uh, the services that we derive from those. So there's, what I talk about is balance, is how you can meet the needs of, of society as well as in enhancing, if not preserving, uh, ecosystems. You know, we're going to talk about infrastructure on the program, and I think you kind of just did, but I want to ask you specifically, yeah. when you talk about natural resources as infrastructure, right. what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so uh, this kind of started with this idea of critical infrastructures. And, you know, the if you look at what uh, the government considers critical to the functioning of humanity, uh, there's things that we would agree with, right? Electricity, water infrastructure dams to store water. If we have a failure, we lose water. If we have a failure in electricity, we lose electricity. We need these things to for to function. Uh, we need hospitals, our buildings, you know, in a, in a winter storm, we need to have electricity stay warm. The chemical industry is in a critical infrastructure. Agriculture is a critical. So you look at these sectors of the government where they, it's considered critical to functions. And so you know, we know that natural systems don't operate on these timelines. If we cut down a tree or we, we end up developing an agricultural plot of land to put in a new HEB, that this isn't creating an immediate concern. However, the Yellowstone story is really interesting because here we have a national park and we have a flood and typically floods are disastrous, they can knock out critical infrastructure such as roads, and they did that within the park. But this park is serving as a critical means of economic support for these gateway communities. And so the closure of the park from a natural disaster, a very naturalized area, is creating significant economic impact. And many of those communities, which I hope we'll talk about more, it, you know, completely lost their livelihoods during the summer, at least if they're not completely lost their livelihoods, they've had a major setback. And so it really poses this question of natural areas support critical infrastructures. Uh, for instance, water, if, if we all, you know, like there's a number of small creeks and rivers on lands across Texas, a, a rancher may say, well, this is a small creek. Why does it matter? Well, it feeds public supply water, uh, water reservoirs. It feeds cooling supplies for thermoelectric power plants. So I think it's rethinking what these things do and, and reshaping how we develop, how we consume. So it's broader than just natural, national parks. I think mm -hmm. federal, federally owned lands, state-owned land, government-owned lands open to the public are really important for aesthetic reasons, but it's broader than that. It's, it's how we manage private lands as well. And, and how we convert those into the future if you're talking about putting up new shopping malls, putting uh, in, in new grocery stores, et cetera. We have to think about these areas before we do. And, and uh, Texas is a land-rich state, but it, the land is also finite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as we talk about the national parks, those are easy for people to grasp, but it really yeah. just uh, trickles on down from, from it there. Does. It does. Yeah. It extends. So if we think of trees as infrastructures that are important to sustain our livelihoods, that's a it changes the conversation somewhat. 
visiting with Ryan McManamay from Baylor Environmental Science. And, you know, you mentioned the communities. As we talk about Yellowstone, what we're really going to be talking about here are the communities impacted right. by Yellowstone. But let me ask you uh, about really the genesis of, of what it is sure. that we're talking about now. Take, take us back. To, to last summer around this time or a little a little right. past this time when uh, you were visit, out to visit Yellowstone with your family. Certainly. So um, my family and I, uh, my wife and our two kids, um, we were going to be meeting my parents outside of Yellowstone in uh, Island Park. And on the way in, on the highways, it was, we saw these signs that were saying all entrances to Yellowstone closed. And um, we sort of, we didn't know what that was about, so we contacted my folks. They were also coming in uh, to West Yellowstone, and they said it was chaos. Just everybody was out of the park, and they were trying to find where, to, where visitors could go. And so they were trying to get information themselves, but they found, that they found out while there that it, there was flooding. And they said it appears that the park's been closed from flooding. And so that was June 13th. That was the day the park closed. It was the day we're coming in to, you know, have a two-week vacation in the gateway areas, going in and out of the park, and we were really closed off from it. So at that point, we were, you know, we had a real big derailment of, of a family vacation, which it happened to be my parents' 50th. So oh, wow. we, were, we were there to celebrate their 50th uh, wedding anniversary. Um, and so we had a big change of plans. Uh, but I, I was like, well, this is a big event. This is causing a lot of issues, and here we are. Uh, I want to start documenting that and start documenting that in conventional but non-conventional ways to understand who all has been affected, the, um, the nature of recovery, the timelines of recovery, so that we could compare how the park recovers relative to how critical infrastructures outside the park are recovered. What what was the damage inside? We're going to zoom outside the park in just a second, but what were the damages inside the park? There was uh, the significant amounts of damage were in the northern portion of the park uh, along the Gardner uh, River Valley and along the Lamar River Valleys. These rivers, the Gardner and the Lamar, overtop their banks, uh, and, and at least they're, in, in some areas they're floodplains. However, the roads that that parallel these these valleys um, were really close to uh, the rivers and as to provide people the scenic quality but also these are the old wagon trails that traverse these areas and the the road corridors just stayed the same for a very long almost you know over a century have stayed largely the same um, and so these rivers you know, carved the toe of the bank, creating collapse. These are landslide risk areas anyway. So the the, the soils, uh, the, the the hillsides are pretty unstable. And so complete sections of roads were wiped out. An infrastructure to carry water uh, or wastes, for instance, from Mammoth to Gardner, where the wastewater facility was, that was com- those, those wastewater lines were completely severed. Um, it really kind of looks apocalyptic when you look at the pictures of the areas where roads, just 100 yards of road was just washed away. And so this was severe impacts to the corridors, uh, critical corridors within the park. There was other damages to other areas like buildings were kind of damaged, trails were damaged, but those two areas, those roadways were the most significant. 
visiting with Ryan McManamy. And so, Ryan, uh, the, the roads are washed out for you and your family and many others out there. It, it's a disappointing sidetrack on a vacation. But yeah. for, you know, you know, you mentioned Gardner, Gardner, yeah. Montana, these gateway cities, there's a huge impact. What are the gateway cities uh, that most people could probably recognize? Definitely. So Yellowstone National Park has um, five entrances the north, northeast, west, east, and south. Along each of these entrances, there's communities that have developed and grown as the popularity of the park has grown to have economies based on those. So on the west side's West Yellowstone, Montana, and that is the west entrance. You go to the north, you have Gardner uh, right outside. Both of those are in, that's Gardner, Montana, and also Cook City is the northeast, uh, Cook City and Silvergate. Those are all in Montana, and so Montana, southwest Montana, was probably large, the most significantly hit by the flooding because, and especially Gardner and Cook City, they were completely cut off from the park. Um, and so I'll, I'll go back to Cook City here in a, in a second, but on the east side, you go out the east uh, entrance and you travel a ways to Cody, Wyoming, and then during and out of the south entrance, you go through Teton National Park, and below that is Jackson Hole. Those were the those were the communities that we really focused on uh, evaluating impacts in. And they're they're reliant. Obviously, most of right. their income from the year is reliant on those months when people are traveling there. Oh, significant income. We in in our surveys. So we conducted surveys of the communities, Gardner and Cook City, especially. 50% was the minimum loss. We're talking about many uh, folks that have lost 80%, 90% of their income. Many that were like, I've lost every, I, I've lost everything. Uh, 100% losses. They're not getting any income this past summer or the summer of 2022 uh, from the flooding. Uh, Cook City was very critical because at the time the flood hit, uh, you really have only a couple of entrances to, to this village. You enter through the park, through the northeast entrance into the Lamar Valley, and then people that needed uh, supplies, food, would have to go through the park, out through the north entrance into Gardner so they could travel to Livingston to go get groceries. Um, so you have the road is severed, and the northeast entrance is severed. The Beartooth was closed for its own damages. The Beartooth is a path pass goes over really high altitude mountains. It's actually the longest contiguous uh, uh, road in Alpine tundra area uh, in really? the lower 48. So it's a really beautiful road. But as you can imagine, in, in cooler months, it's going to be closed. So it was closed. So you really only have one exit route going over through really windy mountain road to Cody. And so it's a critical path. The, this community was completely closed off and economically suffered as a result. And I've not been there, but uh, when we're talking about Gardner Cook City, we're not talking about big box stores and recognizable signs towering over the highway, right? We're talking about a lot of mom and pop diners, gas stations, you know. That's right. Yeah. Those are non-incorporated uh, areas. They, um, uh, you know, the, the fear in many of the people that we talked to was that they have purposely remained non-incorporated uh, so that it's because of the small stores, the the small town feel, um, the locally owned and operated uh, recreation ecotourism community, um, and uh, the 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 fear there is that after losing out, you may have more corporatized uh, 
uh, ownership come in and present opportunities for folks to sell out when, you know, because of the, the economic impacts that they've incurred. Uh, and so that's a real risk in this community, and it may change the, these communities uh, for the long haul. Visiting with Ryan McManamay here on Baylor Connection. So, Ryan, uh, you're there. Um, the vacation's derailed. The idea for kind of what you just described starts forming. Take us through the months after um, after the trip when you started looking at ways to gather data on this. And, and tell us what it meant then from there to work with people in these these communities. Certainly. You know, you wanted to help in some way. And, you know, there's only so much that you can do. And so the biggest thing was, uh, well, I, I will, I'll say the, 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 at that time, the, and the people will tell you themselves, the, the media didn't, didn't help a lot in the situation because it was, you know, there was the repeated uh, visuals of the one house in Gardner floating down the Yellowstone River. Um, well, that was a very small section of Gardner that was one house. That was the only really big piece of infrastructure that was lost. Uh, and, and so the, the town was really untouched, largely, aside from the closure of the park. So the, the thing that people wanted people, to, you know, they wanted the general public to know is, hey, we're open for business. We have a lot to offer. You, you may not be able to get into Yellowstone, but actually you can walk in through this section, but you can visit the national forests around the communities, et cetera. So the way to help was kind of getting the story out is, hey, these places are open. They've been really heavily impacted. Is there things we can do? So part of it was understanding the economic impact. And so we, we devised a survey to be able to document this. That's the first thing that you need to, you know, in a standardized fashion, a scientific fashion is let's, let's get some numbers about how these, how these businesses have been impacted. And we found out it was pretty severe. Um, but before that, before we devised that survey, we were like, well, we need money to do, basically get research support to go back out to Yellowstone to be able to do some of the research that we want to do, document the infrastructure. So we, we, act, we applied for NSF RAPID, National Science Foundation RAPID grant. And uh, these, these grants are, um, are, are aimed at capturing ephemeral data before it's lost. They're, they're exactly suited, they're designed for researchers to use them to get after data and patterns that are going to be lost if you don't collect them immediately. And, and so we were able to, we applied for that, we sent a proposal and that was funded and that allowed us to go back to Yellowstone that same season in September to do these surveys to conduct photo documentation mapping of infrastructures that were lost to understand the extent of the problem. Who, uh, who all participated with you on, on this? Yeah, so um, it was a fun group. So um, in the RAPID, we have a collaborator at Montana State uh, University, uh, uh, Dr. Jean Dixon, um, and she specializes in landslide risk. So she had been studying these road corridors and been telling the park that it's just a matter of time before these, these roads succumb to a natural disaster. Ben Ryan, uh, who is a, a associate clinical professor at Baylor, uh, was with us, and Ben specializes in disaster risk, uh, as well as communicable diseases. He was very important to Baylor in helping the COVID task yeah, We force. had him on this program then. Th- yeah. that's, that's great, yeah. yeah. So Ben is, is next door, like he's my next door office mate uh, in, on the hall. 
And then uh, we had uh, two of my graduate students, uh, Jillian Sturdivant and Jordan Jatko, who uh, came out uh, to help with the surveys, and also an undergraduate, Josh Beard, in film and media, because at that time we were wanting to collect information for the eventual development of a, a documentary. So you got a good crew going out there, and you're gathering data. And you know, obviously, you said that they, you know, obviously, the the impacts were severe. But take us inside. What, what was it like working with the people there? What stood out to you and your team as you as you just spent time in their in their world? Yeah, you know, the, the, these are tough tough folks, uh, and they'll they'll <laughs> they'll tell you that too. Um, it was really interesting talking with the people there. They were. That they were pretty clear about the problem, but they were still very optimistic. They hadn't given up, and they weren't blaming. You know, they they weren't casting blame. You know, elsewhere they're saying they clearly were like, "We need help." Uh, they they were very clear. This was a repeated kind of thing. Was that hey, the 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 media could help us out in being able to promote the fact that we are open. You know, the whole town didn't wash away in Red Lodge. And this was something repeated ac- across these communities. And, uh, and, and so the, there, was, there was a lot of optimism. And I think there was a toughness and grit to the people that, that uh, w- was apparent. And they were curious as to what we were doing. Um, and, and, yeah, they were just they – were, they were supportive. And it was, it was neat to work with the Chamber of Commerce. So before we started the service, we, we contacted the chambers, the respective chambers of commerce in each community and wanted their buy-in to be like, we're, we're coming into each, each town. You know, we would love to work with you to understand the, the, the community, the economic sectors here to, to understand uh, the impact. And so we certainly wanted to coordinate with them that there was multiple channels of communication to these businesses to, to form trust. And the, the communities have, had, had been or sort of had um, survey. They were weary from a number of surveys because they had had a couple more earlier. But it was our survey was aimed at understanding very acutely the economic impact but also the importance of the park to their community. So we really documented that as well. So you gathered this information. Uh, w- yeah. What do you do with it then? What, what are some ways yeah. you can deploy this? Certainly. Yeah. So uh, the first was we just want we need to document the problem. And so if you think about how disaster relief works, um, it, it's all about valuation. So insurance, flood hazards, the flood uh, emergency or the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, it operates uh, by valuation, val- valuating lost assets. And so when in situations where you, you know, and there certainly were community members that had buildings flooded, had lost buildings, but, but really that was cleaned up very quickly. And so there is valuation there of to understand the the needs for insurance, uh, you know, uh, payments, uh, disbursements, etc. In situations where a park closes and you have economic Im- impacts from that, so it's an indirect impact to your business. You, there's there's really there's a lot less ways to value that that loss, and so the importance of documenting that is number one importance. And so there are grants that people can apply for. Uh, there are loans. The problem was that COVID in 2020 
really had created another deficit on this economy. And they had 2020 came and they had a lot less visitors to the park that created losses. So in that year, a lot of a lot of folks applied for loans. So 2021, they had a boon year because everyone had been locked in lockdown, ready to go visit the park. 2022 came and they have this this flood that completely cuts off. And I think if many people were to have reserved applying for loans, they would have done so in 2022 instead of 2020. But they had already applied for a loan. They're already having credit issues, et cetera. So you've now got a double whammy. You've been hit multiple times, and you're out of options. So the first thing was documenting this. We handed our results to the Economic Development Agency that works with FEMA to help in these kind of situations. It helps with economic build back, looking at strategies for how you can rebuild the, the economic resiliency of a community. They use the results. So they're going to they use the results and you can work on other other papers or uh, right. efforts to kind of stand up for these people or just what you've talked about at the beginning of the show when you're talking right. about valuing these uh, assets as infrastructure. So what are, what are the next steps for you on this for you and your team? Well, so we've I've been trying to float grant opportunities to the chambers of commerce be like please work with your your relative state department of transportation these are ones the grants that that baylor cannot lead and i've even indicated to the the folks in the chambers and the communities will be willing to 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 help out as uh, even no at no cost as a cost share just to support the activities that you want but but you guys have to apply to help you know uh, reshape how do you rebuild how do you develop economic resilience in your own community with or without the park? There is this really neat, tight relationship between these communities and the park. For instance, if there are disasters or there's need for emergency responders, folks in the town, like of Gardner, will come help the park service. The park service has a number of contractors, but the number of staff are actually very few. So they have to rely on each other in times of fighting fires or whatever it is to, to deal with an issue. So there's this interdependence. So how do you, how do you continue that? How do you develop that? Um, we're trying to float opportunities by them. Uh, for us, we want to keep pursuing these ideas. And any grant that we write, we want to ensure that it has on-the-ground relevance, but also on-the-ground on the return of, of revenues that we're actually helping with. Uh, a big need for the area is that you have park service employees or even contractor employees. These these areas in these communities are meant for tourism. So the properties are pretty expensive. So another issue that's needed is affordable housing for workers within the park to be able to live proximate to the park. And, and they're losing workforce because people don't have a place to live. All of these things call for a need for very integrative um, regional you know, uh, planning and consideration of what does infrastructure look like in the future. So as, uh, as you uh, look ahead to the summer, you're, you're headed back here next month. That's right. It, what, what's, what's on the agenda there? So one of the things when we were talking to the Park Service was how can we help? And we wanted to, to be a big help. We, we tried to get in the park. They're, they're, obviously, the, the Park Service is very uh, busy during the summer months. And so when we were there the first time, we were trying to get a permit to come in the park and evaluate infrastructure that had been damaged. The park actually has a great inventory and monitoring program. They were able to monitor 
all the assets that had been damaged. But one of the things they needed was a group to return and look at, okay, we haven't done a reassessment of what's been repaired. And after a really long, hard winter, what's the current status of these infrastructure? And so our team's going back in to reevaluate that and provide an update of their monitoring of the infrastructures lost in the park. Yeah, so that's the that's our primary role is mapping those, where did those occur, what's their status. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what you uh, find there. It's really a, a great story, and as you uh, continue to work on this, uh, we'll have to stay in touch so we can share Certainly. more about this work, and uh, not just at Yellowstone, but the way we value these uh, resources in general. So thank you very much. Definitely. Thank you, Derek. I really appreciate being invited. Well, great visit. Uh, Ryan McManamy, Assistant Professor of Environmental Science, our guest today on Baylor Connections. I'm Derek Smith. A reminder, you can hear this and other programs online, baylor.edu slash connections, and you can subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for joining us here on Baylor Connections. <laughs>